is Cassie, if we haven't met yet, and uh, get to be married to this awesome guy, Alex, right here. Uh, we get to lead this little Jesus community together, and we're so grateful to have each and every one of you here with us today. If we haven't met, that means you're most likely new, and you have not come to a newcomer's lunch before, and we're having one right after service. If you didn't sign up ahead of time, we'd love for you to come. Uh, no commitment necessary just gives you an opportunity to get to know a little bit more about the church, uh, to hang out with some people uh, that we know and love here, uh, and to see if you want to call this faith community your home. So it's going to be right after service at 12, actually right upstairs in the balcony area. It's a really cool space up there if you haven't seen it before. It's awesome. Uh, well, it's been many months since I've gotten to preach here. I actually think it was May. Uh, and for those of you who haven't been with us, it's because we've had nine different gifted communicators from this community actually preaching all summer long. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, but in the midst of just that rest, I feel like I've reflected on a few different things I just want to share with you this morning. And the first is that, oh, man, am I grateful for rest. Like, ugh. There's something about taking time apart from what you do regularly, like that routine and rhythm that reminds you like, oh, I really love to do this. <laughs> and the good news is I really love to do this. I don't hate it. Um, <laughs> but also, I feel like rest just gives me the space to maybe not hear God better, but just kind of clearer. It's like in that quiet and just that space, it's like all of a sudden his voice just becomes like that much more clear in my mind. The second thing that I feel like I've been reflecting on this summer is that preaching is important, but it's not the most important thing I do. Um, we were with some family just hanging out this summer, and they were reflecting on a retired pastor whom they knew and loved. And oddly enough, they didn't talk about any of the sermons this pastor ever gave, nor like words that that pastor spoke to them. They were constantly and consistently recalling just the moments he was with them. And it was such a good reminder that oftentimes our presence is so much important than our words. And the third thing I've been thinking about is there's nothing that quite checks your ego like inviting nine different communicators from your church community to preach and realizing they could all replace you. Like, really? It's like, great, awesome. My value here is, ah, it's good. No. Uh, thank you so much for the bottom of our hearts for those that did take a turn uh, preaching and delivering the word and for those who are willing to receive it. Uh, last week, Corbin finished up our sermon series on the Minor Prophets, which is what we were doing this summer. And so today we actually start a new sermon series entitled Come Holy Spirit. And this is going to take us through the fall into the beginning of 2024. Specifically, we're going to start by tracing the activity of the Holy Spirit through Genesis and working our way through Revelation. But before we get there, I want to outline like four objectives or things that we want to accomplish as a result of this series. And hopefully for some of you who hear the words Holy Spirit and are like, oh dear God, what are we going to be talking about? This will put your mind at ease a little bit. So objective one, we want to move beyond information. So information is important. If you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know we think that. I read a lot of books and Hannah and I have a running count right now on who's reading more books. I think it's Hannah. 
She told me somewhere around 50 already this year, guys. She's impressive. I know. So it's not like we don't love information here. Knowledge is great, but we have to move beyond just information. Uh, Alex recently sent me an article by a man named Professor Simeon, Simeon Zoll. Excuse me. He uh, works at Cambridge University, and in this article, uh, he really deals with the concept of Christian information. Christian information. So the theory of Christian information goes a little bit something like this. Have you ever sat down from somebody, given them some advice, and thought, I really hope they do that, but I can't imagine they really will, right? So it's like oftentimes we give people advice. They don't always really follow through with it because it's really hard to say, I'm going to change habit X and then actually follow through. However, Within Christian circles, we seem to think if that advice comes from the Bible, that somehow people will just do it. Like, automatically, we'll be like, hey, you really should love your neighbor because that's what the Bible says, so you should go do that, like, throughout your whole week. And the reality is, as much as we would like to think that that transforms people, it doesn't often do so. Few examples to illustrate this so you don't think I'm like crazy heretical. Um, so, example, right? How many of you have known somebody that studies and reads the Bible week in and week out with more fervency than you and just is like so mean? Like, just not a good person, right? Or there are scholars, religious scholars that exist out there that know more about Greek and Hebrew than I do, have studied the scriptures, know it front and back, their knowledge far surpasses mine, and yet many of them do not know Jesus. In fact, they would make fun of me for having a Christian faith. Just because you have knowledge, it does not equate action or a change in your very being. Knowledge in and of itself does not transform our hearts. Information alone does not change us. And therefore, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to know a knowledge that goes deeper than just our Christian worldview. We must move beyond information. And our apologetic must be taste and see that the Lord is good. May we be a community in the lineage of Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, Peter, those that can point to a date, a time, a location in history in which they encountered the living God and they were transformed by him. And the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, is the thing that helps us do this. So we've got to move beyond information. Number two, Ordinary encounters. We must have ordinary encounters. Some of us have been brought up to believe that the Holy Spirit is in the worship bridge. Like, ooh, that was a good bridge, right? Or in yelling. Or in a camp meeting. Youth camps? Yes. Okay. Or in three-hour services. Like, if somehow the service is longer, the Holy Spirit must be there, right? It's good. We tend to only find the Holy Spirit in extraordinary moments. But what if the Spirit also existed in the very ordinary? If we take Jesus at his word when he promises to make his literal home in us, right? 
In John chapter 14, verse 23, then we have to trust that our everyday, ordinary moments can be infused by the presence of God. And so in our times together as a community, we will learn to find God in the ordinary, in the quiet, in the mundane, avoiding hype and over-emotionalism. And as Jesus followers, we hope to be able to identify the spirit who is all around us and recognize his very presence in our ordinary lives. So although we want to have ordinary encounters, we also, objective number three, want to have a radical openness to God. Although the Holy Spirit is not marked by hyper-emotionalism or the drum break, the Spirit does the miraculous among us. And thus, our simple prayer is this, come Holy Spirit. It's an ancient prayer passed down from century to century that expresses our openness and receptivity to God's activity. Are you open to interruptions? What about a surprise? Are you open to God revealing himself in a way that you did not expect? Are you simply open to God? In this posture, this prayer should disrupt our status quo. It should expand our horizons. We should begin to see that the power of God's spirit is boundless. There's so many possibilities. Which leads to objective number four, do the Jesus stuff. Matthew writes in chapter 4, verse 23 through 24, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, Jewish synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. You know, many of us strive to be Jesus to those around us, right? What would Jesus do? But do we really do all he did? And then the question is, could it be time for us to do some of these things that we've been shying away from? Could it be time for us to heal the sick, relieve the addicted, exercise the demonic, reveal his kingdom in this way? For we will learn throughout this series that Jesus commanded his disciples to do all he did. And so my prayer, Alex's prayer, and the prayer of the leaders of this community is that we would be deeply shaped by our encounters with the Spirit of God. That we would be empowered to pick up the ministry of our Savior Jesus and to do as he did. 
And so, in light of this, I want to share a little bit about my story, about my Christian upbringing, my church upbringing, to kind of set up my sermon today. So, I grew up in a Pentecostal church where services were, in fact, three hours long. Sermon were relatively the same week in and week out, and it always ended with a charismatic rendition of Satan is under my feet while people were slain in the spirit. And if you have not heard that song, man... It's just quite something. I'm just saying. It's, it's good. Nostalgic good to me. Okay. Uh, now, don't misunderstand me, okay? This faith community actually did a lot for me and my faith in Jesus. I do have to see the good even in the imperfection. I had some powerful experiences with God, some that carried me all throughout my adulthood. I saw physical and undeniable healings, like things you saw in the New Testament and in Acts, and you were like, seriously, did that just happen? I learned faith through the eyes of the poorest and the marginalized as they quite literally gave their very last coin to Jesus. I learned that females could be strong, lead and preach, and yes, that I could even call, be called by God. But whether unintentionally or through my own interpretation and understanding, I began to believe that God's presence only existed in that three-hour church service on Sunday. Despite being taught that God was with me everywhere, circumstances told me different. I started to think that God's presence only came when we were loud enough, only came when we prayed hard enough, only when we sang or danced enough, only when the drums pounded loud enough, only when the truly extraordinary was happening. And unfortunately, this had a profoundly negative impact on what I'd perceived to be God's presence. In fact, God's spirit became something very narrow to me and only achieved through hyper-emotionalism. And so when things were quiet, in the moments where I felt sad or unable to sing for joy, in the boring, the mundane, or just maybe even the ordinary, I began wondering, like, is God even there? But this turned out to be the wrong question entirely because if God's spirit is the very breath I breathe, as we will learn today, if God is in the ordinary acts of breathing, of course he is there. The question I should have been asking myself is why do I not feel him? Could it be that maybe you're asking that same question today? I think the answer could in part simply lie in a misunderstanding of God's spirit or his presence. Maybe you've believed the spirit only has existed in the extraordinary. But as we'll learn today, God's spirit does not come and go from you based on your actions, your physical environment, or the type of mood you're in. But the spirit exists always in your breath and in creation. You cannot escape the presence of God, for he is in your very 
And so, with that in mind, let's begin by looking at the activity of the Holy Spirit starting in Genesis. But before I say Genesis 1, quick disclaimer on the book of Genesis. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding regarding this particular book, specifically the first 11 chapters. And this is really unfortunate because they're some of the most important chapters in the entirety of the story of Scripture. These verses have often been used to defend ideas of creationism, old earth creationism, evolutionary creationism, to debunk faith altogether in the light of science. And if you don't know what those words mean, that's okay. You're probably lucky. <laughs> Unfortunately, right, all of these ideas miss the point. In these texts, there's almost no historical particularity in chapters 1, to chapter 11, other than a specific reference to a particular people in chapters 10 and 11, there's no concrete historical persons, groups, movements, or institutions. Furthermore, almost all of Genesis is a narrative, but Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the first, the first three verses, are actually poetry. And hear me out, this is decisively not some sort of like scientific haiku, okay? like real poetry, designed to be poetry. And so with that in mind, Genesis was not designed to be scientific or abstract in its statements about the origins of the universe. Rather, Genesis is a theological and pastoral statement that reminds us, its readers, that if God created the world, if he sustains the world, he can be trusted regardless of how it happened. <laughs> Even in the face of contemporary data like sickness, poverty, unemployment, loneliness, abandonment, we can trust God because he is our creator. And this is the message of Genesis chapters 1 and the first three of chapter 2. So, Let's begin. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Better translation here is sky and land. Okay, This is how the uh, Israelites would have understood the terms heaven and earth. Moving on to verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this account, yes, establishes that God created the land and the sky, but the second verse tells us something very interesting about God's spirit. Specifically, the spirit referred to is the, here is the way the biblical authors refer to the presence of God, the personal presence of God. The Hebrew word here is ruach. Can you say that with me? Ruach. You got to get the in the back of your throat. Yeah. Ruach. So ergo, the ruach was hovering over the face of the waters. And if we do a little bit of a study into this Hebrew word, we learn some ways that it was used throughout scripture, specifically to refer to wind, breath, and spirit. Wind, breath, and spirit. And the thing all of these three things have in common is energy. Wind, as we all know, is powerful. It moves trees and waters. 
And yet this powerful, forceful energy is invisible. Right? We can't necessarily see it. The same goes for our breath. Right? When we breathe in, we feel the strength and the vitality of life. But we can't see our breath unless it's cold outside and you see the condensation. And I'm sure a wonderful scientist could tell you all about that. The meaning of this word reveals something very unique about God's spirit. Like the winds sweeping over the plains, God's spirit is powerful. And like the very breath that animates us, God's spirit gives us life. And thus, if we had to define the spirit today, it would be God's spirit is the powerful presence of God that brings life. So continuing on in the Genesis narrative, we actually see that very spirit, right, that's energy, spring to life, goes into action. So picking up Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, we begin to see the spirit creating and sustaining, and the first three words are, and God said. Have you ever wondered who God is talking to, right? Like, we're told it's void, right? There's darkness, there's chaos. Humans don't exist yet to our knowledge, right? Like, who's God speaking to here? The answer is his spirit, his ruach. And herein lies a beautiful and a very important truth. That there is a close link throughout the Bible between the spirit and the very words of God. For you cannot breathe and also speak separately. I'd like to see you try. God's breathing word brings creation into being. In verse 3, God tells the Spirit to create light, and there's light. In verses 4 and 5, God tells the Spirit to create night and day, and there is night and day. In verses 6 through 8, God tells the Spirit to create sky, and it's there. In verses 9 through 10, God tells the Spirit to create land. It comes into being. In verses 11 through 13, God tells the Spirit to create plants, seeds, fruits, trees. They are there. In verses 14 through 19, God tells the Spirit to create the sun, the moon, the stars, and they appear. In verses 20 through 25, God tells the Spirit to create bugs, Birds, fishes, sharks, whales, cats for my cat people, dogs for my dog people, zebras, elephants, all that creeps, flies, and swims is created. And then in verses 26 through 27, God says, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. And we learn a little bit more about humanity's creation in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, we read. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed 
into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. God's breath, his spirit, does more than just breathe life into plants, birds, fishes, and animals. God takes the very breath from his lungs and places it into our nostrils. He uses it to give us humanity life. And this is a really important distinction because it highlights the very unique and intimate relationship that we as humanity hold with God for God's very breath is in your lungs. But the Spirit does not just create. God didn't just create it all and say, hey, I'm out. (laughs) The Spirit also sustains. Old Testament Israelites not only believed the world began with God's words through his Spirit, but they also believed with great wonder that God's Spirit or presence consistently sustained it. This is actually why God's spirit is called Ruach. For as the wind and breath are always present, the spirit is always present and sustaining. Job reflects this prevalent ideology amongst the Israelites when he says in Job chapter 34, verses 14 through 15, if, God, if it were God's intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all mankind would perish together and man would return to dust. This great sustaining truth is not only affirmed by the Israelites, but Jesus himself, as he reminds us who clothes the grass of the field and adorns the lilies with their beauty, who feeds the ravens and knows when a sparrow falls to earth in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus saw this truth of the sustaining spirit in his scriptures, the Old Testament. And he saw it as such an encouraging truth, he had to share it with those around him. If God cares so much about even the smallest thing in his creation, will he not care for you? Jesus said. This thought seems to be echoed in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? Or in other words, theologian Christopher Wright says, God is everywhere present through his spirit in the whole of creation. You can never get lost from God. When the birds sing, God is there. When the grass grows, he is there. When the cicadas chirp, as they do at my house a lot right now, (laughs) he is there. When the wind blows, he is there. When the water falls, he is there. And when you breathe, He's there. You cannot escape 
the presence of God, for he is in your very breath. And this really is a powerful truth that can transform so much. The way we understand the very presence of God but if this statement is really true, there's a few lingering questions we've got to address. If we want to understand the Spirit and all He does, we must ex accept that He's in our very breath. And that, at least personally, leaves me with some, huh? Uh, growing up, I was the kid who always wanted to know why. Uh, so why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? Why are some people poor? Why are some people rich? Why do vegetables taste so bad? I like them now. And why can't I have dessert for every single meal? And although I have not really grown out of this, as Alex can attest, I have Google now, so it's great. Um, I don't know how my parents lived without an iPhone and Google. Uh, but for this particular section, I'm giving it for all the kids out there who really need to know why. And I cannot promise to have a great response to every single question, but I hope to address a few and briefly give you a bit of confidence regarding the spirit that's in our breath. So question number one. If God's breath is in all of creation, should we worship nature or even ourselves? This is a very important question, as it's not just something that other religions do, but many New Age philosophy believe, right? Many who believe in New Age philosophy uphold to. And the short response to this question would be no, and we get this answer no, because time and time and time and time and time again, I don't have time. I could spend all day talking about this. It could be a sermon on its own. We see that all creation is meant to glorify God. And Paul actually sums this up really well in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. I love concise summary statements, and he does it here. He says, from God and through God and for God are all things. To God be the glory, amen, or so be it. This should not, however, keep us from recognizing the handiwork of God in nature and amongst ourselves. In fact, as Jesus followers, we should do this really well because we have a creator who breathed his breath into us. Question two, if God's breath is sustaining and creating all of life, why are there natural disasters, invasive species, extinct species, global warming, disease, cancer, chronic illness, you fill in the blank? This is a really big question to tackle, and I probably won't do it perfectly, but here we go. Uh, the first response to this question actually can be found in that Genesis account. Humanity is given a choice to be the image-bearing stewards of God crea God's creation and instead decides they want to be like God, knowing the knowledge of both good and evil, other words, life and death. And humanity chooses this knowledge of death over that original role and design to steward God's creation. And this choice has consequences not 
just for them or all of humanity, but actually for creation itself as we break our very relationship with God. The decay of the environment, therefore, does in part result from human initiative. And the evidence of this can literally be seen today as humans continue to harm it. Hosea actually links human wickedness specifically to the destruction of creation. The prophet says in chapter 4, verse 3, that because of our sin or our disordered desires, when we do things we know we ought not to do, the land mourns, creation languishes, animals and birds and fish die. On the other hand... Another response to this question lies in the spiritual forces of darkness and evil, which in the West we diminish far too often. Jesus is very clear that there is an enemy out there who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And this enemy sits in direct opposition to the giver of life as articulated by Jesus in John chapter 10. You have the giver of life on one side, Jesus, and death, the enemy, on the other. This enemy is actually described by Jesus as being a murderer from the beginning. This should hearken back to our Genesis account. The enemy desires for all that God calls good, both creature and humanity, nature and us, to die. And this is why Paul in Romans chapter 8 compares all of creation and even us to a groaning, waiting mother trying to give birth. Nature and humans made and sustained by God's spirit and redeemed by Christ still exist in the midst of darkness and chaos and wait for Christ to return for his renewal of all creation. And in the meantime, we partner with God's spirit to renew the world. And so on that thought, One more important thing to mention before we move on, if the Spirit is not just involved in creating, but also in sustaining, I do believe the destruction of God's creation grieves the Spirit. And so regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum or what strategy you think will solve ecological issues best, we, you, each carry a responsibility to care for God's creation now. Question three. These questions get harder, I warn you. If God's spirit is our very breath, why do we stop breathing? Or in other words, why do we die? This is a big one. (laughs) We're keeping it real light today at Midtown. Uh, Actually, as I was working on this section of my sermon, the lyrics from the Matt Redmond song came to my mind. You give and take away. Anybody? Give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Side note, I was reflecting on those lyrics. Those are some of the most depressing lyrics, like the most upbeat tune in like the whole world that I can think of. It's very interesting. But regardless of what you think or how you feel about that particular song, 
these lyrics actually do come from Scripture. Job chapter 1, verse 21, in which Job writes this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Similarly, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, poetically reflects on human death. I guess that's possible. Recalling imagery from Genesis saying this, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, right? God scooped up the dust and breathed into it. So the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Theologian Christopher Wright describes this phenomenon well, because it's like an uncomfortable, weird idea, right? And he says this about the spirit. He says the spirit both breathes, but the spirit also leaves, He writes, the paradox of the relationship between the spirit and human life on earth in the Old Testament is this. On the one hand, we have the breath of life, i.e. physical life, the gift of God which we share with all other living creatures on the planet. But on the other hand, we are spiritually dead in our rebellion against God and destined to die in the end. And when that life-giving spirit leaves, as destined to die physically as we already are dead spiritually, breathing and leaving, life and breath are the gift of God's spirit. But when the spirit leaves, breathing stops, and our mortality asserts itself. But there is good news. Wright goes on to say that if you flip the pages into the New Testament, we see we have great hope. For this leaving, just as Christ's leaving, is not in vain. It has a purpose. Just as Christ died and was resurrected three days later, this leaving or death has a purpose. Eventual new life, new hearts, new spirit, and new creation. This is what Paul means in Romans chapter 8 when he draws a distinction between the groans of humanity and the groans of creation. Specifically, he says humans should be groaning in eager anticipation of our new creation. Our new bodies, bodies that are not moored by sin or the evil one, bodies in which there is no more sickness and disease or dying, bodies that desire to do the right thing and not the very thing we ought not to do, bodies that are transformed into the likeness of our resurrected Jesus. Spirit breathes and the spirit leaves, but there's new life better life, life more abundantly on the other side. And so with these remaining questions, as I have attempted to address them, if the Spirit is the powerful presence of God, the presence that brings life into our very lungs, if the Spirit both creates and sustains us, if the Spirit is the very breath in our lungs, why do we not feel him? And I think the Genesis account today has provided us with at least some answers. 
For Genesis reveals that, yes, the Spirit creates. Yes, the Spirit is powerful. Yes, the Spirit is life-giving. But also, the Spirit is very ordinary. As ordinary as the very breath in your lungs. As ordinary as the act of breathing. Could it be that, like me, you've only looked for God's presence in the extraordinary and never looked for it in the ordinary? Could it be that that very act of breathing itself is a felt expression of God's spirit? That breathing is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Could breathing be a simple reminder that God really is there? You cannot escape the power of God's presence, for he is in your very breath. There's a simple prayer that reminds me, and hopefully you, of this very real truth. And it's something I've utilized in my own personal practice and time with Jesus to kind of begin to rewrite and reframe some of these things I've understood about the felt presence of God. And so today I'd actually like to invite you to practice it with me. You notice I haven't called up the band yet. Alex will do that for us later. We're just going to spend a little bit of time in silence practicing what's called a breathing prayer. And so, if you feel comfortable, if you want to place both feet firmly on the ground, relax those shoulders, pull them back. Close your eyes if you feel comfortable. And as you inhale, pray, come Holy Spirit. And as you exhale, pray, I receive your wisdom. Inhale, come, Holy Spirit. Exhale, I Receive your strength. Come, Holy Spirit. We receive your strength. Inhale, come, Holy Spirit. Exhale, I receive your love. Come, Holy Spirit. I receive your love. Inhale, come, Holy Spirit. Exhale, I receive the fullness of God.
Come, Holy Spirit. We receive the fullness of God. Lord, more than even just this prayer, may every inhale and exhale remind us this week of your presence as you fill our very lungs. Come, Holy Spirit. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.